0: I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well during the dangerous season of the French Revolution, the French government converted a royal palace into the Louvre Museum where treasures and works of art were displayed as property spoils of the country. And some years later, a friend of the young Napoleon at that point told him, you make a hundred times more money with your bayonets than we can raise with every financial law imaginable. And so this sparked An idea, Napoleon set his eyes on plundering Europe of its art. He secured three or four art critics to guide him. He moved to various cities, Parma, Medina, Milan, Bologna, Rome. Pope Pius VI was forced to deed 100 paintings, busts, vases, or statues at the choice of the French commissioners writes Cynthia Saltzman in her book entitled Plunder, where she details this. And it didn't take too long for Napoleon's eyes to land on a mid-16th century Venetian piece of art entitled The Wedding of Cana at Galilee, painted by none other than Paolo I feel like you've got to say it like you say Alfredo, pa- Paolo Veronese, something like that. I'm neither Italian nor an art critic, so forgive me. By the way, there is a copy of this that you might have gotten on the way in. So in an article in the Wall Street Journal, Roger Lowenstein writes... The artist and a crew of weavers, seamstresses, and carpenters had painstakingly mounted the work on a refectory wall in a monastery, fostering an illusion that the refectory, or this dining room where the monks took their meals, opened onto the scene the painting itself. It was hailed as a masterpiece. One critic called it not a painting, but magic. By the time Napoleon's cronies were done with it, it was cut in half for transportation. It had multiple tears and it needed significant touch up. And this history continued. Later, during the Franco-Prussian War, it was rolled up with paint chipping. It was stored in a huge box to be taken out some years later. During World War II, it was taken out of its frame and moved around France in a truck so that it could be moved as bombs were falling. It had seen abnormal wear and tear, to say the least. And if that wasn't bad enough, in the early 90s, a leaky air vent splattered water all over the painting, which required significant touch-up. And then, as it was being rehung on the wall, one of the support beams broke, and it fell on the floor, causing several tears, one of which was over four feet long rough history. This is like our image of Jesus. The story in John is one about Jesus's first miracle at a wedding, but our images of Jesus as you know, popularly conceived in our imaginations, right? They've been touched up, supplemented, torn down, put back together. We are in need of touching base with the original artist and subject, the image as rendered by scripture itself, sacred scripture. So John's gospel is a glorious image and guide along these lines. Just as a painting draws one in as an observer, so scripture draws us in as a character. We're not intended to be passive. We observe to be sure, but we participate in the image as we encounter it. And so what do we know about this image? John chapter 2. On the third day, we see from the reading, it's in your bulletin, Jesus goes to a wedding. We should recall, as I trust John would desire of us, that on the third day of creation in Genesis, we see land and new life and fruitfulness emerging out of water. And we are about to see this again. And notice, Jesus is at a wedding which is to say, he's at a gathering of joy. He isn't here in a law court, a place of condemnation. He doesn't go to a funeral, a place of mourning, although he'll do that later. Jesus likes to celebrate, apparently. How different than the stern, pietistic, almost Gnostic image of Jesus so often painted throughout history. Our image of Jesus is often touched up in ways that are unfaithful to the original. And I wonder, is your experience of Jesus one of condemnation? Or Jesus who is full of moral seriousness, but with no joy? This is a painting of Jesus that has been vandalized, that has been touched up with the wrong paint. And in this passage, we see that the wine runs out. What an embarrassing fiasco. Can you imagine this happening? at any wedding you've ever been to before. And so Mary says to Jesus, Jesus, they have no wine. What is she expecting of him? Whatever she wants, he's uninterested. Jesus actually kind of blows off his mother. Can you imagine what she thought? She is his mother. What was she saying in her mind? Don't you know I gave birth to you, Jesus? Does she use his full name? Jesus Christ. Children tend to respond to that. She doesn't. How do you respond, I wonder, when Jesus says no to you? Mary is okay with the mystery. Mary appears to be patient and persistent in the face of her Messiah son. And so she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. The wisdom of a mother. She doesn't say to the servants, make sure you keep all the commandments. She doesn't say, make sure to do everything right. Make sure to never make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, make sure to nurse that shame such that it becomes a part of you. Make sure that you're all holy and separate. She doesn't say that. Or make sure you got it all together so that we can get some wine out of this. She simply says, do whatever he tells you. She knows they need to listen to Jesus because it is his word that allows the party to flourish. His word is the word that brings the miracle. His word is the one that transforms. His word is the one that brings further joy and celebration. He speaks, the miracle happens. And the wine is so good. It's so good that the steward of the party is floored. And what's the point of this? That Jesus likes good wine? probably did. Is this a forecast of the Last Supper from John? Is this a reversal of the judgment on Egypt? Instead of turning water to blood, it turns to a celebratory libation? Are we supposed to think of the upcoming miracle of resurrection that also happens on the third day? The words with which this passage began. Well, do you remember those six jars of water, those stone jars that were present for the rites of purification mentioned in the passage? These are not insignificant. You see, both John and Mark included explanatory notes on Judean purity customs, because many readers from other cultures would be unfamiliar with these specific ritual practices. However, the main point of these sections was not just to educate on ritual customs of Judaism, but to record the events in the life of Jesus. In particular, later in the Gospel of John, living water is mentioned multiple times. Jesus says in reference to eternal life that he gives living water, and those that drink of it will never again thirst. John 4, John 7 Perhaps the stone waters were used and the miracle is an earlier allusion to drinking the living water that Jesus himself would explain later. The wine, no doubt, must have represented the atonement itself on the cross through the blood of Jesus, a foreshadowing of where the whole narrative is moving. Regardless, regardless, We actually have found, I mean, archaeologists have found some of these stone jars just right outside of Galilee where they were made. And drinking wine from jars used for ritual purification would have sent a powerful message of spiritual purification to those in attendance at the wedding. The living water turned wine, which never runs dry. With Jesus, the wine never runs dry. But notice who isn't present as an explicit character at the wedding. And this is perhaps the most important point. Notice who is not named as a character. Can you guess who it is? The bride. The bride is not named. The story ends and instead of hearing about their send-off on a honeymoon. We hear about a different trip. Jesus joining his followers, his disciples, and going away for a few days. It seems the point is that Jesus was the groom. But who then is the bride? That's a very important question, which only is revealed to us when we reflect further on the passage. But first, let's go back Venice. In the painting I mentioned, the religious symbolism really takes priority over the banquet protocol, such that Jesus is seated at the center of the painting. And just above in this painting where Jesus is sitting, there's a group of men butchering an animal. And in the left corner of the painting, more meat is brought into the feast. Art critics say that this was most assuredly lamb meat. The knife, the knife being held in the air, which is just above Jesus' head in the painting, is ready to fall once again on the finest choice meat, the Agnus Dei. Every wedding needs a main dish. We all know that. And those are usually costly. Jesus will be our groom, but only by being the one who gives his own life for the feast. You see, when the groom shows up, and he does show up, he is content to just be with us. But for those with eyes to see the sign, for those with eyes and gumption to engage this living water, he is willing to be poured out for you and for me. He's willing to both purify and nourish us. This image of Scripture painted for us by John is the first instance of the miraculous in the ministry of Jesus. And like all weddings, we are meant to remember it. In fact, this wedding is intended to inform the rest of our lives. Like all weddings. Why? Because we... We are the bride. We are the bride. And so Isaiah writes, You shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You see, as John knows, the point of being drawn into any good story, it's not the story. It's the relationship mediated through the story. So consider one final detail in the painting. No character looks upon the audience of the painting except Jesus, his eyes cut straight through The many characters of the painting, and the dogs, and the celebration, and the music. His eyes are focused and centered directly on those who look upon the painting, on the audience. Jesus is looking at you, and not only in this painting. You are the bride for whom Jesus is waiting. You are the beloved whom Jesus desires to engage. The entire point of the spiritual life is simply to be with Jesus, to be still and to be silent, to not live off other people's spirituality, but to have your own. You see, you are the one through whom he desires to bring new life. He is waiting for your answer. Will you marry me?